welcome to another Nordi on Mind podcast with me, Johan Trokmea, and Victor Sonebeck. Good to be with you in the studio again, Victor. Good to be back. And uh, this is not going to sound particularly healthy, uh, but we have uh, actually written a new Nordi on Mind report again about bank regulations. Some of you listeners might wonder uh, if we are really feeling okay. Uh, we are, although it has been a bit of a journey to uh, dive into these bank regulations and revisit the topic of Basel IV, the global uh, regulatory framework for banks. Having looked at it a year ago in the Nodia on your mind, we, having had a lot of dialogues with clients, really picked up quite strongly that there was a growing interest among clients, however strange that may sound, and particularly a very apparent need among them to understand better what Basel IV was all about and how it could affect them as corporate borrowers. And Quite a bit has actually happened since we wrote that Basel IV report a year ago as well in terms of the uh, proposal for how this uh, framework is to be implemented. We did look at it last time at a very sort of high level angle in why do we regulate banks, who does it, how is it done, and, and, and of course looking at the impact on banks and on corporates as borrowers. But there has been quite a lot new. So, Victor, if I if I uh, hand over to you, what would you point to in what has happened since a year ago? And it uh, it is like you're saying, Johan. Perhaps it's not the most most uh, enjoyable exercise every time, but there are a lot of things happening in this area, and of course, it is uh, very very relevant, and not only for us uh, in the banks, since it's it's bank regulations we're talking about, but it it is very relevant for for our corporate customers, and, and, and uh, as you said, a lot is uh, happening. So just uh, to start off, I guess a, a, a small summary of what we did last time could be in order. And what the Basel regulations uh, entail and, and, and what the, the new revisions to this framework is, is largely about. Uh, it is everything ranging from how banks calculate operational risk, how bank looks at, uh, banks look at uh, market risk, uh, and of course how we as banks uh, look at, at the credit risk in our corporate lending activities or our exposures uh, towards our corporate clients uh, in uh, general. And just just as a kind of highlight, uh, the effects of this will be uh, that the European banks are estimated to need a lot more uh, of, of the so-called regulatory capital. So, so the backup uh, capital and, and the, the, the estimated need or the estimated increase in capital need is that the so-called tier one capital for banks uh, will increase by, by some uh, 14%. Uh, and the point of, of uh, this exercise is to to then dig deeper into what is this change, where does it come from, and, and how does it ultimately affect uh, our activities related to our corporate exposures. Because of course, uh, this additional capital uh, capital uh, uh, increase, this additional capital levels, uh, needs to have, or, or, or does have a cost uh, associated to it. And of these 14% increase in the so-called tier one capital, 12% comes from change it's related to our corporate uh, uh, corporate exposures so i guess corporate borrowers you could say are the big losers from Basel before in that respect for sure for sure so when it comes to these new revisions to the framework the the, the biggest source of, of changes in uh, how much capital the bank needs to hold comes from these areas uh, that are related to, to uh, uh, for the most part, our large corporate uh, exposures. And uh, what we're going to be looking at here, you could divide it up into three things, pretty much. And one is is uh, the standardized approach, as it's called, and has to do with how the bank looks at, uh, at the credit exposure, how we model the credit risk. For, for our exposure towards a client. And the next one would be our own internal uh, ratings-based models, uh, where we, the bank themselves, 
uh, or ourselves uh, have developed models in order to best uh, determine the, the level of credit risk uh, for, for a client. And lastly, there's something called the output floor, which kind of connects these two. And, and, and uh, we will dig a bit deeper into all of these. But these are the, the three things that will affect uh, affect uh, the corporate lending activities the most. Uh, and we can also mention that that a lot of uh, discussions are being um, are, are ongoing uh, with regards to the exact uh, revisions to the Basel framework. And we've also had a change in, in, in uh, the timing for the implementation. So as of right now, it looks to to uh, to be 2025. Uh, that is the starting point for the implementation of these uh, these uh, new revisions to the framework. Yeah, and it's interesting because the proposed implementation was already postponed a couple of times, most recently because of the COVID pandemic. And now there is further postponement to the current proposal of 1st of January 2025, not least because of the pretty substantial impact that Bottle 4 is going to have, uh, particularly in the area of corporate borrowing, um, so that there is a perceived need to be a bit gradual in in, in rolling all, all this out. And, and indeed, you are mentioning pretty uh, dramatic increases in bank reserve capital requirements, Victor. So, so I guess it's it's quite valid that there is some more thought being put into this and some breathing space being given to all the involved parties to put this all in place. And I guess given that level of drama, it might be useful to say something about why the regulator is doing all this, right? So the question then, why BIS is introducing this, what they call finalization of the current Basel 3 framework, but which we and more others with us call Basel 4, since it is actually so comprehensive that it's more accurately, we think, described as a, as a new framework rather than uh, just a, a small set of revisions to an existing one. The BIS wants to harmonize the way banks measure credit risk, how banks calculate what is called risk-weighted assets, which is risk-adjusted lending to the bank's customers. And the idea here on the sort of very high level and putting it in very simple terms is that the BIS wants to level the playing field between banks around the world, meaning that they need to use more similar approaches in how they calculate their risk-weighted assets. But there is a backside to all this, which is that means that banks will use simpler tools to measure credit risk. And that means that you lose some of the benefits of having the more sophisticated advanced tools available today under the Basel III framework. And when it comes to level playing field and harmonization, the big paradox here as well is that different banks in different regions around the world will, as it looks, be affected very, very differently from the implementation of Basel IV. And Nordic banks, unfortunately, are among those in the world which seem to be on the way of being affected the most. And that is in a negative sense. Large corporates who borrow from banks will be affected by Basel IV in a pretty major way. And among those, uh, the corporates which are large but who do not have an external credit rating are among those who will feel the greatest negative impact compared with how they are treated by banks when it comes to lending under the current Basel III. But in order to understand all this, Victor, I think it's probably good to take a look at how banks calculate credit risk. And I think, as you're saying, one of the, the major points and one of the consequences of this notion of, of kind of leveling the playing field is, of course, that you want you want banks to, to uh, use similar tools or to, to at least have the inputs in their own credit models uh, be enough similar 
so that so that the outcomes of, of the, the the credit risk modeling uh, turns out pretty much the same. Uh, and we can just briefly say that w one of the kind of consequences of this, and, and as I will explain a bit more detail uh, very soon, uh, is that what's happening is that you kind of choose these oftentimes perhaps a bit worse tools in order to achieve this, uh, and and you remove uh, the possibility for banks to to model credit risk in perhaps a more sophisticated way uh, that we especially in the Nordic have been uh, been used to doing. So just to, to go into detail into this, uh, how it works for banks when it comes to what level of economic capital they need to hold is that it is defined as a percentage, as 10.5% of the so-called risk-weighted assets. And what we mean by, by risk-weighted assets, uh, and this is where we get into the, the kind of risk modeling in this exercise. So in order to determine the risk-weighted assets for an exposure, what the banks do is that they have some sort of modeling. And under the current rules, uh, the banks typically, at least in the Nordics, uh, use the so-called internal ratings-based uh, models. So the IRB uh, models. Uh, and what this basically is, is that the banks themselves uh, have some freedom to, to uh, model uh, the credit risk uh, for an exposure uh, using various parameters such as uh, loss given default or probability of default and more as inputs into these models. But right next to, to the internal models, uh, you have something called the standardized approach. And the standardized approach, it, it's pretty much a, a table with, uh, with risk weights that is given by, uh, by the regulator. Uh, and this table entails things such as if you have a credit rating between these, these two levels, then you will get a risk weight of X percent. Uh, so just as an example, if you have a, uh, under the current rules, uh, if, if you have a risk weight that is between the triple B minus and triple B plus, you would get a risk weight of 100%. Uh, so, so, so this list of risk weights uh, is what's called the, uh, the standardized approach. Uh, and how it works today is that the bank can, can choose whether to use the, uh, the standardized approach, so whether to just pick these, uh, these risk weights from this table, or banks can, can develop their own uh, internal uh, models. Uh, the ones I just mentioned called the, the, the IRB. Uh, and in these IRB models, uh, you have two different ones. So one is called the advanced model, which as the name kind of suggests, uh, is a bit more advanced, where the banks themselves can mathematically uh, model uh, credit risk exposure with a kind of a high degree of freedom in their modeling. Uh, and the other one is called foundational, uh, foundational IRB. And just to put it simply, the only difference between the two is basically that for the advanced IRB, you have the freedom to model uh, pretty much all of the parameters. But in the F, so the, in, the, in the foundational IRB models, uh, you don't have the same freedom. So, so for some of these parameters, uh, you are instead given, uh, given them uh, by the regulator. And uh, what is happening in the new, uh, the new framework uh, is that these advanced models uh, will be removed. Simple. So banks will no longer be allowed to use their most advanced and, and, and probably their most, most uh, accurate uh, credit risk models. Instead, they will be able to choose between, between using the standardized model or using then the, the kind of uh, a bit worse internal model, the, the foundational uh, IRB model. So, so that is one change that is being made uh, and in essence making the bank's own internal models uh, more standardized, but oftentimes, uh, oftentimes uh, less dependent on the specific company for which you're, you're, you're calculating these risk-weighted assets. And, and, and uh, of course, uh, taking away a lot of freedom uh, that banks themselves have uh, in, in how they, they model uh, the risk. So banks having three options of a very basic approach, a better approach, and a, let's call it advanced or sophisticated approach, 
the most sophisticated one is taken away. And therefore, the only remaining ones that banks can use are the two worst ones of the three. Correct, correct. And, and, and in addition to this, uh, what you didn't have previously is that when you made your choice of using the standardized approach, for example, or, or you made the choice to use your own internal models, then that was kind of it. So, so if you chose to, choose to use your own internal models, then this standardized approach, you know, this table with risk weights, that's not really going to affect anything after that point. Uh, but what is happening now with, with uh, Basel 4 is that you, you introduce something called the, the output floor. And and, and uh, the output, output floor, simply put, uh, puts a limit uh, on how much of a benefit you can get from actually using your own internal models. So as a first step, uh, you're allowed to use worse models. <laughs> and as a sec second step, this model needs to be, to be uh, anchored to the standardized approach in a way uh, through which you can't really get as much of a benefit out of it uh, as you could before. So trying to put it a little bit provocatively, of the three available tools, Basel 4 means that the best one will be forbidden and can just be binned. And if you choose the second best one, which is still more sophisticated than this basic approach, which is essentially a set of tables, as you described, there will be a wet blanket called the output floor thrown over that, meaning that even though it might be better than the most basic approach, it's not going to be that much better. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so most... Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so most that's likely. The question: Why, right? Why? Yeah, why are they doing course. this? Yeah, and, and then we go back into what, what what you explained with you know harmonizing and making bags calculate things in the same way. Uh, but I guess the the why question is of course uh, highly interesting and and, and is something that is being debated uh, with regards to the uh, the Basel framework and then the the revisions. Uh, but we can just add that. Typically, uh, what happens in the credit modeling is that your own internal models are going to uh, to result uh, in a lower risk weight than the standard table says. That, that that's uh, yeah, with, with very few exceptions, of course. Uh, and then it has to do since with the introduction of, of the output floor, then of course the, the standardized approach becomes very relevant, right? Because you have this anchor effect uh, to to the standardized approach. And in the standardized approach, uh, you have a a kind of span of risk weights that are being assigned to corporates depending on their external credit rating. So if you have a very good external credit rating, then you're going to get quite a low risk weight, uh, uh, risk weight assigned to you. Uh, but if you have a, a, a pretty poor credit rating, uh, then of course you're going to get a higher risk weight assigned to you. Uh, but what is also interesting here is that for, uh, for a lot of companies uh, that do not have, uh, have an uh, external credit rating, uh, there is simply this kind of uh, blanket assumption uh, that these are more risky corporates uh, and they, they will, as a basis, be given a risk weight of 100%. So in essence, what this means is that we could be, be modeling within the bank a corporate with a fantastic uh, credit history that, is, that, is, uh, that if they were rated would be you know, one of the best companies in the world. Uh, but if we compare that to the standardized approach, since they don't have a credit rating, then they, then they would be assigned a much higher, uh, higher risk weight. So you get this kind of disconnect in some ways uh, from, uh, from uh, the actual financials uh, of, of uh, the specific company that you're modeling. And corporate borrowers will generally be affected and be the most affected by the implementation of Basel IV. But among different types of corporate borrowers, then, I guess it's fair to describe that 
those who are large corporates, which in the eyes of the regulator means that they have 500 million euros or more in revenue and who don't have an external credit rating are very likely going to be what those ones who see the biggest impact, the biggest negative impact from this in terms of the sort of terms that they will get for bank funding after implementation of Basel IV. Exactly. That, that, that is absolutely right. And, and one of the mechanisms for this is, of course, that if we model it internally with company-specific data, then we can account for such things as, as they have a very good credit history or, or you know, they have a very strong owner, they might be government-owned, etc. So there, there is some kind of leeway here in us accounting for the actual credit profile of the company. But since we're now linking this to this table, so the standardized approach, uh, this, this effect, if there is any, gets kind of watered down and doesn't really mean as much anymore. And what about companies which have a very strong owner? For example, a a state-owned company, where typically that would be a very, very strong, financially speaking, owner for the business. We can, if we use an advanced internal model in the bank, uh, allow for that and let that affect what our internal rating of the company's credit profile is, right? What about under Basel 4? Once that's implemented, do those companies get a benefit from that in the way that they do under the advanced modeling by banks today under Basel 3? Uh, and, and that is one of the areas that you could kind of classify under this unnecessary cons- or unintended consequences uh, topic, uh, where, where you get this you end up in this area where, where everyone could see that this company has very good financials and they have a strong backer, etc., etc. So, so, so they should have a low risk weight. Um, but if the models don't really allow for it or, or allow for us or allow for, for, for uh, uh, the risk weight to take that into account, then, then that's simply going to be the case, that they're, they're probably going to get a higher risk weight assigned to them, uh, which in the end means that the bank needs to hold additional capital uh, for the exposures towards these uh, these sub, uh, types of companies, and going into a bit more than nitty gritty, this this also of course applies to uh, two companies belonging to uh, to a corporate group. So if you, for example, are a, perhaps a smaller daughter company, but you you belong to a big uh, big corporate group, then you will be viewed independently from the group as a whole. So you will be viewed on a standalone basis by yourself and by your own financials. And then this is going to sound strange coming from me just spontaneously, but I think I have to say something about commercial guarantees as well. And and the reason for that is that that's a product from banks that really stands out in how it's being affected by implementation of Basel IV, in that there's going to be a huge change in the capital requirements uh, for banks who issue commercial guarantees. That's a trade finance product, right, uh, which is used by a number of companies, particularly those with an, a highly international business. And that the guarantee means, of course, that the bank steps in and pays if the, the recipient uh, of, of whatever goods are being shipped does not. And, and a guarantee as a product means that the bank does not pay out money. Uh, when it issues a guarantee, the bank will pay out money if there is a need for the bank to do so under the terms of the guarantee. And that means that the capital requirement for a bank from issuing a commercial guarantee is dependent on the CCF, the credit conversion factor. In the eyes of the regulator, how big a percentage of the value of that guarantee does the bank need for regulatory purposes to consider a credit exposure? And today, under Bottle 3, that's 20% for a commercial guarantee. And under Bottle 4, that's going to be 50%. So that's more than a doubling of the credit commercial factor, which means that for issuing the same commercial guarantee under Basel IV, a bank will have to set aside 50% of the nominal value in risk reserve capital compared with 20% today. And of course, that substantial increase in capital put in reserve 
has a cost which will need to be reflected in the pricing of, of those guarantees. So that's another a, area to watch. It's a 150% increase, right? Going from 50% or to 50% from, from the 20% today. Exactly. And that really stands out in the context of Basel 4 as being also from a product point of view among those most affected. And then and this... worth mentioning as well that the maturity for credit um, where under advanced modeling under Basel 3, we calculate we banks the effective majority of the credit uh, and then we price it accordingly. Um, say it could be one year, it could be five years, whereas under Basel four the majority will be a fixed two and a half years. And, and that means compared with Basel three, all other factors equal, short-term loans for corporates will be more expensive relatively to what they are today under Basel III, and longer-term loans will be less expensive relative to what they are today. So, so tr- trying to make sense of all this then, and, and trying to, to kind of uh, highlight exactly what is changing, uh, we have the changes to the standardized approach, we have the changes to the internal bank models, and we have this output floor that will link them together. And on top of that, uh, regarding changes that are towards the, the, the kind of corporate exposure for the banks. Uh, we have what you want mentioned with, uh, with a big change in, in uh, commercial guarantees. Uh, and we have this, this change then to, uh, to uh, how we may use uh, maturity times in our modeling. And, and uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, all of this leads to, to uh, a quite significantly uh, higher demand for, for, for capital uh, for the banks. And as everyone knows, capital carries with it uh, a cost. Uh, so I just want to put you on the spot here, you and, and, and as a representative of the bank, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Um, and and we, we've looked at this data as well. Uh, would you say that there is a case for you know banks having too high of a profitability or, or would you say that there's a case for or a case to be made that banks will simply say yep we're going to take this more this additional capital and, and we're not going to going to put a cost to it that will be passed on to our clients will, will the bank simply absorb uh, this, this higher cost and i think that the answer to that one is an answer which any borrower you or i included uh, are not going to like um, because the answer is no, there isn't really such a, a case. Uh, certainly not an obvious one and not a particularly credible one if you if you try and put it together and argue that that's the way it should go. Uh, and we've looked at it from a couple of points of view. The first one is to see, okay, what is the level of return on equity among banks and how does it compare today with what it was in the past? And if you look 15 years back into history, you can see that there is a very, very clear before and after the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. So looking at the return on equity today of banks, it, it is about 500 basis points lower than it was before the global financial crisis. And the very dominant reason behind that is the regulations which have been put in place after the crisis, meaning that banks for the same volume of business or lending need to hold more capital today. And since profitability in banking has not increased, compared with then, that profit generated needs to be um, spread over a bigger capital base, meaning that the returns are lower. And if we compare with non-banks, instead of just looking at the banks on a standalone basis, uh, which is perhaps arguably more interesting, uh, again, if we do the sort of before and after the global financial crisis analysis, we find that prior to the global financial crisis, banks had the same level of return on equity as other large corporates. But after the global financial crisis, for the very same reason, since banks have been required by new regulations to increase their capital reserves, the banks have three to 400 basis points lower return on equity than other large corporates. And on that sort of observation, 
it becomes hard to argue that there would be an excess profitability uh, present in the banking sector where, say, Basel IV as a regulatory tool would be an elegant way of, of getting rid of that. that. That's simply not the case from an objective point of view. And given that returns have come down quite sharply for understandable reasons, but nonetheless, banks uh, are very strongly incentivized to pass on the additional costs from the further additional capital they will need to hold for the same business volume under Basel IV. So I think it's prudent and it's reasonable for corporate borrowers to assume that cost of bank funding will increase uh, on implementation of Basel IV. So, uh, so in the end, with the uh, the revisions to the regulations as they stand right now, uh, one could expect uh, bank funding then to, to, to relatively speaking, uh, become more expensive. Uh, and then you also main- mentioned the changes to, for example, how, how, how we may uh, look at maturity times uh, in, in corporate lending, uh, but also, uh, but also the, the change to the credit conversion factor for commercial guarantees. So there are a lot of different changes affecting different things. Uh, so, so with that in mind, what would you you say if you were a corporate regarding, for example, you know, changes to to one's funding mix? Uh, is there an increased importance for for credit rating? Uh, could it could it become more relevant with, for example, a, a guarantee, a parent company guarantee, um, something else? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a very natural checklist for companies to consider uh, ahead of implementation of Basel IV, um, and I think that the 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 key things to observe are that number one, bank funding will become more expensive. Uh, number two, the case for credit rating will particularly for some types of corporates, not least these large corporates who do not have a credit rating today be put in a different light and may make more sense. And that's very worth having a close look at because that might alleviate some of the drawbacks from from Basel IV uh, for for particularly those types of companies. Um, And the the, the key from a corpus point of view to being able to navigate the headwinds that Basel IV will bring, we think are to start thinking about it and getting acquainted with it now before it's implemented to be prepared to understand what's coming up next and to start making preparations and what those should be will be different for each individual company there is no universal recommendation that you should do this so you should do that because that depends very much on what your credit profile is what your funding mix is and what your needs will be going forward but just consider the key components the majority of your funding, short versus long term, capital market versus bank, and what difference might a credit may, uh, rating make? And, and as you mentioned, other specific things such as should the parent company issue or, or the owner issue a guarantee to a subsidiary in order to enjoy the benefits of that, because that might be seen in a different light in Basel IV. How are we using commercial guarantees today? Do we need to make some adjustments there given what's going to change in that area? So, so be out in good time, think it through, understand the changes, and then identify the options and take measures to maximize the number of options you will have to be able to come out of this as well as you can. And I think it's fair, Victor, to say that the part of Nodia that you and I belong to, uh, debt structuring and solutions, is the very team in the bank uh, servicing the corporate customer base, which, which also is particularly good at offering advice on exactly this. So capital structure issues, funding issues, our friends in DSS in Nordea are the ones to talk to. So I think that companies should certainly consider doing that because there is a lot of very, very valuable help to be had there.
And that is probably enough of a dose of banking regulations for both you and I and for our listeners, I imagine. So um, I think we will leave it there. Thank you all for joining us for this conversation. Uh, strange as it may sound, it's been very enjoyable. And we will come back with our next Nodioni Mind report after the summer period. And the current plan is for us to take a new look at e-commerce to see what has happened there now that we've had the pandemic period behind us and what might be the new normal. Look forward to seeing you then and wish you a great summer in the meantime. Mm-hmm.